I think this is my cue to preach. Good morning. It's great to see everyone. Uh, my name is Tim Mountford. It's a lot of old friends that I see and new faces. It's wonderful to be back. Um, just a brief introduction to who I am for those of you who might not know me or our family. As I said, my name is Tim Mountfort. I'm a teaching elder and missionary in the Presbyterian Church in America, the denomination that Wallace belongs to. Um, we, were, we became members here at Wallace, I think 2001 or 2002, after we graduated from seminary. And we have three kids, my wife and I, and um, Wallace sent us out onto the field in 2010 to be missionaries to Mission to the World, with Mission to the World, to, uh, to China. And uh, we were there for eight years, came back for two years for some rest and recuperation. And now, um, as of 2020, we've been in Taiwan. Our main focus is uh, trying to reach and train and build up the Chinese-speaking uh, community, church, world, and evangelize that part of the world, um, but we've expanded into other countries in East Asia, so my role now is to be the director of um, East Asia region, which includes Korea, Taiwan, and China. So, so this morning, um, we're going to look at Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, so if you have your Bible with you, or you have it on your phone, or wherever you have this. Let's go ahead and read this together. Deuteronomy 8, verses 1 through 3. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandment or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you didn't know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord." Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give thanks to you this morning that we can come together and worship you as your covenant people. Father, our hearts turn to you. Many of us this morning carry burdens. Many of us this morning may feel confused. Or many of us this morning may be in the midst of celebrating and feeling joyful. Whatever our countenance is this morning, Lord, we call upon you to bless our worship. Lord, through the preaching of your word, may you speak to each one of our hearts this morning. And may we be conformed more and more into the image of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, this passage um, has something about food in it, and everyone likes food. Um, at, at, when I began to study Chinese, I realized that China, China and Chinese was a culture that really loved food, and it comes out in some of its idioms. So, when I began studying Chinese, I realized there were all these idioms that included food. For example, 
If you, in this idiom, are hanging a goat's head to sell dog's meat, that means you're deceiving someone. Or if you are eating a sugar cane backwards, that means that, you're, that things are getting better and better. And I would be willing to bet as many languages that are represented here in this congregation, whether it's Spanish or Urdu or Chinese or, or even English, that we have uh, languages that use idioms that include food. And of course, the Jewish culture was no different. Um, and we see this represented in the Bible, in, in Hebrew. Psalm 34.8 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. We're all familiar with that passage. Or Psalm 119.103 says, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to the mouth. And I don't know if you notice this, but these are both related to God himself and his word. And so this morning, as we look at Deuteronomy 8, 1 through 3, if I were to sum this up, I would say that this is a passage about how we are to cherish God's word and to depend on him in humility for, our, for everything that we need in, in this world. I simply want to outline today's um, passage. It's only three verses. It's short, but there's a lot in here. And so I want to just go through one, two, three, verses one, two, three in this way. Verse one is about thriving through covenant obedience to the law. Thriving through covenant obedience to the law. Number two, remembering through God's mighty deeds of the past. Remembering God's mighty deeds of the past. And number three, verse three, God wants his people to be humbled through dependence on him and his word. So once more, thriving through covenant obedience to the law, remembering through God's mighty deeds of the past and humbling through our dependence on God's word. So let's look at verse one. There's a word in there that says multiply. At that time, the community of God was called to multiply and that, that multiplying included, of course, numbers, more children, bigger families and things like that. And that was representative of survival, of populating, of increasing. All of these words really relate to what I would call thriving. Thriving both individually and corporately. Thriving in this world. And God's commandment is directly connected with that thriving. Obedience to that commandment, to those commandments are directly connected with thriving. So in, in verse one of chapter eight, where it says, the whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do. So at first glance, that seems pretty straightforward, pretty simple. Obey God, obey his commandments. But we have to look a little bit at the context here. Um, in many ways, I would say that this passage is a good summary of the entire book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, the, the, the Greek of Deuteronomy means the, the second law or the second reading of the law. In Hebrew, uh, Devarim means that this is the word, basically the word of Moses that Moses was able to, that God revealed to him. And so as we look at Deuteronomy and particularly this eight 
chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Let's look at the context here. So what happened before this? In chapter 5, we see that God reiterated or re-revealed, if you might, uh, the Ten Commandments, which were first given in Exodus 20. And so God's repeating this, these commandments to the Israelites, reminding the Israelites that they need to be faithful, that they need to exhibit covenant uh, faithfulness and obedience to the rules. And then uh, Deuteronomy 8 picks up on that by saying, the whole commandment that I command you today. But if we look further, this is not just about rule keeping. This is not just about being obedient to the rules. The ancient Israelite community, when they heard the word law, they didn't think of it perhaps the way we might think of it when we hear that word. I think sometimes when we hear the word law, we're tempted to sort of think of it in very cold and impersonal terms. There's a law. We might think about the civil laws and the laws that govern our society. Uh, don't, uh, don't go faster than the speed limit. Uh, don't uh, throw your trash out on the street and things like that. Uh, those are laws. But when the ancient Jewish community thought about God's law, they thought about it in a much broader and fuller way. So let's look at Deuteronomy 6, for example, the Shema, which says you're, you're supposed to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Your whole being, you're supposed to love the Lord and in that, you are to obey his commands. Deuteronomy 6, 7, and 8, we read about God's special hesed love. That Hebrew word hesed, meaning God's loving kindness. That God has poured out his loving kindness on his covenant community. And that in that, God calls his people to the covenant blessings that come about as a result of their obedience. So while we might be tempted to think about the law in somewhat negative terms, maybe cold and, and impersonal ways, this, the word law, we read from one, Psalm 119, is reiterated in many different ways. The word law or commandments or stipulations or things like that. We see it being spoken of in Psalm 119 with passionate, very, very personal terms. The author of Psalm 119 writes it with, very, with, with passion as he talks about both individually and corporately keeping God's laws. So the connection there was Israel with their covenant God in a very personal relationship. And this is what is part of what the ancient Jews would have thought about when they heard the word law. So there's a direct connection here as well with increasing and thriving. It's personal, and covenant obedience brings about thriving. Thriving in that covenant obedience. God's law, God's word, God's oath, God's promise, God's standard. God tells his people to obey his laws so that they can thrive. But you might ask, well, that's Deuteronomy, right? That's the Old Testament. We don't need to pay attention to that Old Testament stuff, do we? Well, yes, we do. But you might ask, haven't things changed? You know, that was then, this is now, Old Testament, New Testament. Yes, things have changed, but it's important to note also that God himself has not changed. So we, ha we make certain adjustments, if, if you will. We, we see in the Old Testament civil laws. We see laws that govern how Israel worshiped. 
And those are laws that we no longer necessarily obey uh, in the same way that the ancient Israel, Israelite community did. But we see things like what the Westminster Standards call the moral law in the Ten Commandments. And we, we know that we have to obey those. And so the law is something that we are called to obey. Yes, it's called, we are called, and the law itself is, is somewhat applied to us in somewhat of a different way. Whereas in the Old Testament, it was sometimes understood as a harsh instructor. We see it in the New Testament as a way of us understanding our own sin. So why did God give us the law? Well, I partially answered that question. Why does he expect perfect obedience from us? Well, there are at least two answers to that question. One, simply God is worthy of our obedience. His law is not just a set of rules. They're promises. God tells us that if we keep his law, he is faithful and will bless us. And conversely, if we don't keep them, there will be curses. That's all throughout the book of Deuteronomy. God says, I will do this, and he does it. He's faithful. He's reliable. He's worthy of our trust and obedience. So that's one reason. The second reason is that God brings about thriving when we obey him. We see this in verse 1 where it says that, that you may live and multiply. That you may live and multiply. Again, for the ancient covenant community of Israel, multiplying meant thriving, that we have more and more in our numbers. So God wants his people to thrive through covenantal obedience to the law. That's the first point. Verse two, second point. This takes, uh, this takes us to verse two where we read that um, God is calling his people to remember what he has done in the past. It says, you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years. So let's take a, a moment and think back on what God did in Exodus, for example, God led his people out of slavery. And how did he do that? Was there a, a great military campaign? Did they have weapons? Did they have a great military strategist? No, they didn't have any of that. God led the Israel, Israelites to defeat the most powerful nation in the world at that time by not doing anything other than trusting him and following him. God did all the work for them. So he's calling his people to remember his mighty deeds, beginning with that exodus from Egypt and saying, look, look at this, remember this. Remember that God did it, not you. Remember how you defeated that powerful nation called Egypt. God did it, not you. Remember how he led you by a pillar of cloud in the day and a pillar of fire by night. God did that, not you. And, and remember how he parted the Red Sea when, when Pharaoh's army came down threatening you. Remember how he did that. He did it. God did it, not you. And remember how he fed you with manna in the desert. He did that, not you. We're going to talk a little bit more about this, but there's a sense of humbling the people in the way 
that they see what God has done in their lives, but also that they would remember how powerful their God is, how good their God is, calling us to remember and interpret things of the past. In social science, they call this making meaning, making meaning of things, making meaning of experiences. And basically, an important part of that is interpreting those experiences. God's acts of sovereign power are awesome, and we are supposed to remember them and make meaning of them. But it's also possible to look at things that have happened to us and come up with a negative meaning to interpret them in ways that God doesn't want us to interpret them. The sinful heart of people can interpret God's awesome deeds wrongly. We see this happening when the people of God begin to complain after leaving Egypt. Remember that? In Exodus 16.3, it says God's people said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us into the desert to starve the entire assembly to death. Well, all of a sudden, slavery is looking good. No, they were interpreting God's deeds wrongly. And that can happen to us too as we look back on our lives. God may not have parted the Red Sea in our life directly or done something as amazing as defeating an entire nation in our lives, but he's done things in your life and in my life that show his goodness. And we're called to make meaning of those things in a way that honors God. So God wants us to interpret his powerful deeds, whether they're in the, in the history, in the Bible, or in our personal lives in the, in the right way. So this is what verse 2 in Deuteronomy 8 instructs us to do. Instructs the people very clearly as to how they should interpret God's leading in their lives. God is good, and He tests us to reveal what's in our hearts. Not so much so that He can see, because He already knows our hearts, right? But so that we can see what's in our own hearts so that we can see how we respond, whether it's in covenant obedience or covenant unfaithfulness. So, God relates this to the law, of course, and how the law reflects a perfect standard, and we are to compare ourselves to that perfect standard and see and understand and know where our hearts are. See how good God is how powerful he is, how holy he is, how worthy of our worship he is, how, worship of our, how, how worthy of our obedience he is. He's worthy of our wholehearted love and devotion. He's faithful. He's reliable. This takes us to verse 3. God calls his people to depend on him because he's reliable because of those deeds that he's done in the past, because he calls us to covenant obedience and faithfulness, because he's worthy. So verse three tells us in, in the usage of food that God used hunger to draw people to a posture of humility dependent upon God's provision. Why? Because humble people recognize that they are dependent and vice versa. Dependence brings about humility, 
And humility brings about dependence. Proud people don't want to depend on anyone. Does that ring a bell with any of us? I want to read a little bit from John Stott's book. I I believe it was published posthumously. Um, He died in 2011. Um, I forgot to check the copyright on this, but there are many parts of the book that are written by others commenting on Stott's life. But this particular passage, the book's called The Radical Disciple, is written by Stott himself. And he recalls a story of when he was in school and a teacher that he had. He says, the man who led me to Christ during my last years at rugby school was the Reverend E.J.H. Nash. He's got three initials there. That means he's really smart. And Nash was known by all of his, uh, to many of his friends as Bash. I don't know why. He doesn't explain. He was a man of outstanding Christian commitment who had a very clear vision of how to win the boys of the top public schools to Christ through various activities, and he was very successful. Despite success in his ministry, however, he showed no signs of arrogance. On the contrary, everyone who met him commented on his humility, and many of us who were his friends were curious to discover his secret. He was very reticent to talk about it, but he did divulge it to me. Bash and I were traveling together by train one day when he told me about his early life. When he was in his 20s, he was struck by a serious illness, and at its height, he thought he was on his deathbed. He became so weak that he could hardly move. He could not even feed himself, but had to be fed with a spoon. It was, he continued, an experience of total dependence and at the same time, of humiliation. Indeed, humiliation, he concluded, was the road to humility. Having plumbed the depths of utter helplessness, it would be impossible to climb the hill of self-confidence, he said. Stott describes something very much at the heart of Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. And indeed, perhaps the whole of Deuteronomy. Moses writes, and God humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. We were created to depend on God, and God wants us to depend on him. And on his covenant people. I'm certain that this subject of dependence versus its contrast, independence, could fill an entire treatise, but we don't have time for that this morning. So I just want to draw out a few points about dependence and independence. First of all, dependence is not bad. Dependence is often associated with weakness, Weakness is not bad either, in and of itself. In fact, in our pre-fallen condition, we were dependent on God. God created us to depend on Him, and there are at least three ways that we can see that if we reflect on what Scripture tells us. First of all, 
God created us to have rest. Today is Sunday, we call it a Sabbath day, a day of rest. God created us to be people that need rest. We need rest, we come to worship, that's part of our rest. We come to uh, we have this day of Sabbath that we are uh, being refreshed and renewed from a, a busy week. That's part of God's creation in us. And secondly, relationships. God created us to depend on relationships. Relationships meaning relationship with God and relationship with his people and even beyond the covenant community. Relationships are a sign of our dependence. And then thirdly, replenishment. This is where food comes into the picture. I don't believe that God created us in the garden, created Adam and Eve in the garden to not need food. We needed food. And so that is a sign of our dependence on God. Well, let me talk a little bit as well about independence. Certainly, it's not a bad thing in and of itself. Um, in fact, God kind of, uh, Paul kind of shows us something in Galatians 6 that in, in, in sort of a contrast between dependence and independence. He writes this, Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Let's unpack that a little bit. First of all, there seems to be two contrasting things. Paul says, uh, carry each other's burdens, but then in verse 4, he says, each, uh, he, he says we should, we should uh, carry our own, verse 5, sorry, carry our own load. So there's, there's a sense in which we are both dependent on the community of God's people as well as God himself, but that we also have a sense of independence and in that we have our own responsibilities that we are to keep up. I think the best example of that that I can think of is just, you know, if you're a parent, you have kids, you want to see them become more and more independent as they grow older. Um, our oldest son is here and he's becoming more and more independent as is our middle child. All of our children are in different ways and, and we rejoice to see that. But at the same time, I tell them, I say, it's great that you're becoming less and less dependent on your parents. But as that independence increases, I pray that you would become more and more dependent on your creator, God. We're not always able to properly discern the balance between dependence and independence. I think as Americans, we're a pretty independent lot. We even have a day coming up where we celebrate independence. <laughs> and that sort of reminds me of the former State Department social, uh, Special Counsel to East Asia, Carol Hamron. At that time, this was probably 20 years ago, she was speaking to a group of us about China and she said something about independence that really struck me. She said about herself that as an American and as a child of the 60s, there was a special place in her heart for civil disobedience. She wasn't just describing herself. She was describing the ethos of this country. That independent spirit sometimes causes us to miss out 
on the dignity of humility and the beauty of corporate dependence. So let me recap. Verse one, God calls us to covenantal obedience and thriving through, his, through obedience to his law. Verse two, he calls us to remember his mighty deeds and interpret them properly as we make meaning of them. And verse three, we are called to humility through dependence. Ultimately, we cannot understand the gospel without understanding the dignity of humility and the beauty of dependence. Why? Well, going back to our first point about thriving through covenantal obedience, we, quick, we quickly run into a major problem as we think about both ancient Israel and their track record of obedience and our own track record of obedience. Well, the problem's obvious. We can't do it. We're not good at obeying. Whether you're an American or not, being obedient is difficult and, and, and indeed impossible for us. We cannot keep perfectly God's covenant and his law. So we have a problem there. How are we going to thrive? How are we going to properly worship this God? How are we going to honor him? How are we going to proclaim his name? God takes care of that through Jesus Christ. But we can't understand that unless we understand how utterly dependent we are on him for that to happen. The way God provides a way for his people to defeat the Egyptians, God provides a way for us out of the bondage of slavery due to sin, to our own disobedience. God provides us with a savior, Jesus Christ, who displays perfect covenant obedience. He kept all the laws perfectly through humility and dependence because Christ himself was humble and dependent. We, came to God, we come to God through the redemption that Christ accomplished and that the Holy Spirit applies in our lives. Just as God uses food to humble the Israelites in the Old Testament, Jesus himself tells us to feed on him in John 6 and 7. He alone is the bread of life and the word of God. There we find true spiritual food. There we find the word of God in Christ. Feeding on Christ means we utterly depend on him in humility. And there is dignity there. Deuteronomy 8, 1 through 3 calls us to thrive through covenantal obedience to God's law, remembering God's goodness and mighty deeds through history, and depending on him in humility to bring us squarely to the foot of the cross. When we are in Christ, we're able to rely on his obedience. We see his goodness and the powerful deeds in Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And we are humbled as we come to utterly depend on him to thrive in our worshiping of God because he's called us his special beloved. He's placed his hesed love on us. So this morning I wanna ask how many of us are struggling with life, with 
depression, with financial debt, with relational conflict, with just being tired of the culture wars, with sexual sin or confusion, with doubts about God's goodness. Is he still in control of all this? You're not alone in this battle, but are you trying to make a go of it by yourself? If so, I want to call you to utter and complete dependence on Christ. Brothers and sisters, it's a daily battle. I know I myself always am wanting to just march out into the battle of the day without prayer, without recognizing and acknowledging that I need God to lead the way. Maybe you're the same as me. I read our Pastor Ryan's email about how he himself has sought counseling and I just rejoiced because that expression of dependence is beautiful and it's humble. And we need that. I would just want to conclude with another excerpt from Stott's book, The Radical Disciple. And this part is written by him as well. And he's talking about the sort of the later years of his life. He writes, let me share with you a recent experience of mine which demonstrated my weakness and dependence. It was Sunday morning, August 20th, 2006, and I was due to preach in All Souls Church, Langham Place, London. I was putting away some clean laundry when I tripped over the protruding feet of a swivel chair and fell between my bed and a bookcase. I knew at once that I had broken or dislocated my hip for I could not move, let alone get up. I was able, however, to push the panic button I was wearing and kind friends immediately came to my rescue. Hugh Palmer, rector of All Souls, found my sermon notes and somehow managed to preach my sermon. Only later did I note its appropriateness. For I had prepared an exposition of the Lord's Prayer. It consists of six petitions, three expressing our passion for the glory of God, his name, his kingdom, his will, followed by three expressing our dependence on his grace for our daily bread, for forgiveness and for our sins, and deliverance from evil. It had long seemed to me that the second half of the Lord's Prayer is a summary of our discipleship, our concern for God's glory and our dependence on his mercy. Dependence is a fundamental attitude for all of us whenever we say the Lord's Prayer. Five years later, John Stott passed away. And as I said, parts of that book were written by other people reflecting on his life. I don't know if you remember this, but in 2005, Time Magazine called John Stott one of the top, most, top 100 most influential people in the world. His reflection on the beauty of humility, the dignity of humility, continues to enrich my theology and hopefully yours as well, simply because he powerfully points to Christ and our need to utterly depend on him. One way that we can express that dependence is in prayer. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we 
so desperately need you. And yet, it's so easy for us to neglect that neediness. So easy for us to deceive ourselves into thinking that we've, we got this, God. But Lord, you know the truth. Whatever smarts we have, whatever abilities we possess, they're from you. So even when we think we got this, and maybe we experience success, it's still from you. Lord, you are not opposed to us in our efforts. You want us to be diligent. You want us to exert effort in our daily living. But our posture in whatever we do needs to be one of dependence on Christ. So Lord, this day, this morning, may you bless your people, each one of us here. And if among us there are those who are not part of your covenant community. May your Holy Spirit work in their hearts and draw them so that they can recognize their need for Christ and his covenantal obedience and experience the thriving that comes in that covenant relationship. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.